0: To flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind upon the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, What should we do to you? to make the sea calm down for us. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights.
1: Thanks, Neil. So Jonah is, uh, we've been doing a, a series, by the way, on the minor prophets, just a little bit at the start of the year, a little bit here in the middle of the year, and we'll hopefully come back to some more in future. And Jonah is very much like the other prophets in that he is called for a specific purpose, which is to proclaim the word of the Lord. That is what the prophets did. Uh, But each of the prophets also had a a specific situation that they went to. And for Jonah, that was to be the city of Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, uh, the biggest city of its time. And so this call that we read about in verse 1 and 2 is really what the whole book is based upon, this purpose, this ministry that Jonah has, all the interactions between God and Jonah, they stem from and they springboard from this call. And so it's worth noting right up front for all those who are believers here uh, that we have the same call as Jonah. Uh, We've seen that over the last few weeks that we are called to be prophets who proclaim the Word of God to others. And so it's worth, as we think about Jonah and and ourselves in the light of Jonah to be considering the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. Go and do that. But what is Jonah's response to his call? How does he react? Well, he's faced with this decision to either obey or run away. And of course, Jonah chooses the latter, doesn't he? And he doesn't just go and lock himself in his bedroom and sort of try and hide from God. He books a fare to Tarshish. And you can hopefully see up on the map uh, that Tarshish is a long way away. It's probably as far from Nineveh as you could possibly get in those days. Uh, you couldn't go much further. In fact, it's like as, as far as fleeing goes, this is the ultimate. Jonah's like, I'm, I'm going on the opposite side of the world. And so he literally flees from God's call. And if you look at the chapter, you might sometimes notice that there's a lot of going down for Jonah in this chapter. He flees and then he kind of has this downhill journey. Uh, He goes down to Joppa, uh, where he books the ship, and he goes down onto the ship. He goes down below deck in order to go down into sleep. And then eventually he goes down into the water, doesn't he? Down into the depths and ultimately down into the belly of a fish, uh, which we'll come back to. And so Jonah's response is to run, and it sets him on this downhill trajectory. He is unfaithful to God. But now consider God's response to that. Instead of dismissing Jonah or disposing of Jonah, which he could well have done, he, he goes after Jonah, he chases him, he's faithful to him. He's determined to teach Jonah and to use Jonah and to grow Jonah through this experience. And ultimately, God is showing Jonah and others his greatness. That's another word that we find a few times in this chapter. Great. There's the great city of Nineveh, which belongs to God. There's the great storm that he sends against the ship. There's a great fish that he provides to swallow Jonah up. And so while Jonah is going down and down and down, God is being great, great, great. And while he graciously pursues Jonah to save Jonah, he's also doing these other things like revealing himself to the sailors, these pagan sailors. Now the kids might see that on their sheet there, that God is saving Jonah but he's also saving the sailors. They come to know this true and living God, they make vows to him all because of these events. And that doesn't justify Jonah's disobedience But it does show how God can save even through and even despite Jonah's rebellion. I mean, imagine what he could do through a willing prophet. And so here we get the the first glimpse of this overarching theme that God doesn't need Jonah in order to save people. In fact, he saves people even while Jonah is doing the opposite of what he asked. But he does want to use Jonah to transform him and, and save him further. It's a little bit like when Evie wants to help me unload the dishwasher. Uh, it, it is far longer to do it with her. I can do it much quicker by myself. And she often does things that then needs to be undone, of course. But I'm glad to do it with her. It's, it's fun. It's enjoyable. And of course, she's a lot more willing as opposed to, to Jonah. For now, anyway, that'll probably stop soon. But this is God's relentless compassion. That he would go after Jonah and show him patience and faithfulness and, and a second chance. But also that he would show himself to these sailors who come to worship him and to know him by his grace, even, even through Jonah's sinful flight. But now we want to see a little bit more about what Jonah learns. And so we're going to go to Act Two uh, his desperate, dependent prayer. And uh, James, I believe, is going to come and read Jonah chapter 2 for us. Uh, Thanks, James. This is James, everyone. So we're in Jonah 2.
2: Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly, and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell I cried, cried I, and thou heardest my voice. But thou hast cast me into the deep in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about, and they all billows, and the waves passed me over. Then I said, I am cast out of thine sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. The waters compassed, compassed me about, even to the soul. The depth closed me around you, the weeds were trapped around my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains, the earth with their bars was around me forever, and yet Hast thou broken, brought my life from corruption, O oh Lord, my God? When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. later that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy, but I'll sacrifice unto thee with the voice of, thine, of thanksgiving. I'll pay that, that I'll pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord, and the Lord spake unto the fish. And volunteered our Jonah upon the dry land.
1: Thanks, James. There you go. You can't get much lower than this, can you? Down into the depths of the sea, Jonah goes. And you might remember, we've talked about it a few times lately, how the sea uh, for ancient Israel represented chaos. And we're actually going to talk about that a lot more next week as we begin in Genesis chapter 1, talk about the waters. But it represented chaos, things unformed, all things that weren't orderly. But then he also goes down into the stinking, slimy, enclosed guts of a whale. And you can't really imagine it, can you? The smells, the noises, the darkness... Digestive movements just sort of grating against you. It's disgusting. And that guy recently in the States who got gulped by a whale, uh, I think he was in there for like a couple of minutes at most, and just in the mouth. But here's Jonah for three days. It's unbelievable stuff, and of course, a lot of people don't believe it. But of all the prayers prayed in the Bible, none compare to this one for setting, do they? It's absurd. And yet it helps to explain why Jonah prays down there. I mean, after all, before this, he hasn't spoken to God at all. the sailors said to him, can you cry out to God? And he he basically ignores that. But here in in this belly, he's got literally nothing else to do. That's a factor, isn't it? He hasn't brought a book. He hasn't got a smartphone to swipe through. He didn't bring his knitting needles. All he can do is pray that's it. And it makes you wonder, wouldn't it be good if we had that kind of distraction-free time? But of course it's about more than boredom. Jonah here is at his lowest point. He's been going downhill and here he hits rock bottom. He's literally an inch away from death. He ran from God He nearly got a bunch of sailors killed because of his stubbornness. He watched them pray. They called out to God and he just refused. Instead, he actually says to them, guys, throw me overboard and kill me. But don't ask me to admit my faults to God. And now he's face to face with his rebellion. And so he prays. He realizes that he's helpless without God, he realises that he's nothing without God. And so he prays. And what kind of prayer does such helplessness and insignificance inspire? Well, it inspires a prayer of thanksgiving, of repentance, and of hope. I mean, thanksgiving because all of God's goodness in the past suddenly becomes a whole lot clearer, doesn't it? I mean, there is literally every other time in your life is better than when you are in the belly of a fish. It's a prayer of repentance because he realizes he's disobeyed the God of nature. The God who can control the weather and who can control animals and can do anything, controls the world. And it's a uh, a prayer of hope for life beyond the depths. A redemption from the pit. He sees the fish for what it is, a deliverance, and he, he knows that God can deliver him. Whether it's rescue that comes before death or whether it's redemption and salvation that comes after death, Jonah knows that there is hope. And that's exactly what we see through God's action. He provides the fish to deliver Jonah from drowning and then the vomiting up on dry land, that delivers him from the fish. In response to this desperate, Dependent prayer, God shows even further mercy to Jonah and rescues him. His compassion never fails. Remember that from Lamentations 3. His mercies never fail. And at this point, we, we need to consider the big giant finger that is pointing us to Jesus Christ. To Jesus who never disobeyed God. Who never ran away who always obeyed the calling to proclaim the good news of the kingdom to everyone. That same Jesus who did perfectly where Jonah failed, he was lowered and humbled even further than Jonah. Where Jonah spent three days in the belly of a whale, Jesus says he would spend three days in the heart of the earth. Where Jonah nearly died, Jesus died and was buried. But where Jonah was spat out onto dry land, Jesus rose from the dead to become Lord and King of the universe. Because Jesus is not only the greater and perfect Jonah who obeys, but he's also the ultimate revelation of God's mercy and compassion and his victory. Jesus is lowered to the depths on our behalf and then exalted to the heights for our blessing. The great God who determined to show love to the wicked city of Nineveh and sent a storm and a fish after his prophet, that is Jesus. He is the one who chases us with compassion and who rules us with phenomenal power. He takes our place out of his mercy and he smashes death out of his authority. He's the one that we pray to and give thanks to and repent to and put our hope in and cry out as Jonah does at the end there, salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord. And how clearly we see that in Jesus. So we're going to take at this point a little halftime break and sing in response. Uh, about the salvation and the greatness and the compassion of God and, and particularly in our low points and in our trials. So why don't we stand together now and we can stretch our legs and we'll sing and praise God for this. So we come to Act Three. A second beginning, a second chance. Thanks, Mavis, for reading chapter three for us.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nivea and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nivea. Now Nivea was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nivea will be overturned. The Niveavites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nivea, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nivea. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast... Herd or flock, taste anything, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and have compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened.
1: So verses 1 and 2, they're almost identical to the beginning of the book, except that it's a second time. And this time Jonah obeys. He goes to Nineveh and proclaims the word of God, judgment and all. And not only that, they repent. They repent. They turn from their evil ways and seek the Lord's compassion. And not only that, God shows them mercy. He relents from destroying them and they are saved. And we need to just pause for a second and consider the absolute magnitude of these events. I mean, firstly, this call to preach judgment to Nineveh is an outrageously intense mission for this one man. It's not only the biggest city of its time, but it is also the most wicked, full of ungodliness and sin and debauchery and evil of of every kind. It's an absolutely overwhelming task. I mean, imagine if God told you to go today and preach judgment and destruction to the city of Melbourne. Go over there right now and do that. Where would you start? How would that look? What would you do? Wouldn't you also be inclined to run in the opposite direction? I mean, Jonah's actions don't seem so bad, do they? But the magnitude of the task makes the magnitude of deliverance exponentially bigger. Imagine a whole city repenting. I like to have the image in my mind of of a Dan Andrews in sackcloth. But imagine, imagine God starting a revival through one grumpy, reluctant prophet. But that's what he does. The great God saves the great city. He saved a few sailors when Jonah bolted in the other direction, but he saved an entire city when Jonah obeyed. The kids can see that on their sheets. God saved Nineveh. He saved Jonah and sailors and this whole city. And doesn't it make you wonder, even just a little bit, what might God do with us if we were more willing? What could the great God of nature and of souls do with our proclamation and our witness? Sometimes I wonder if the slow trickle of Australians into the kingdom is what God is doing with a reluctant, hesitant, excuse-making church. And perhaps in the future, there's something bigger, a revival for a willing passionate, gospel-proclaiming church. And maybe he has to humble us some more for that, or maybe he has to remind us who is in control before we go forth with zeal and conviction. Maybe he's got to feed us to the fish for us to see clearly. I mean, if God can bring a city like Nineveh, the biggest city of its time, a city that is an empire, to its knees... He can do anything. And we look around at the secular world and we think, no, it's too firm. It's too strong against the gospel. But God can do anything. Nothing is too outrageous. Even our leaders in sackcloth. And so that's the end of chapter 3. And wouldn't that be a great place to stop right there? Jonah would just make a lot of sense if it just ended after chapter 3. You know, you know, Jonah's repented, he's obeyed, God saved him, saved the sailors, Nineveh is saved, everyone's going to live happily ever after. But no. For Jonah, and definitely for us as well, the learning never stops. I hope the kids can see that too. Learning never stops, even if you're as old as the oldest person here. There are still lessons to learn. Jonah's pig-headedness and misunderstanding rears up again for a fourth act. And I'm gonna invite Jamie to come and read chapter four for us. Thanks, Jamie.
4: Reading from chapter four, Jonah's anger against the Lord's compassion. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is, what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord rep- replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals?
1: nice abrupt ending to the book, isn't it? You can just see Jonah in our day and age, uh, instead of sitting there over the cities, sitting in front of his computer, watching the news feed, maybe with a bit of popcorn, what's going to happen to Nineveh. It's not fair, God. Your grace isn't fair. Your compassion isn't fair. Your mercy is not fair. This is Jonah's response. I knew, God, that you were a compassionate God, that you were gracious. I knew, because I was taught it since I was a a baby, that you are abounding in love. All throughout the Old Testament, I read about it. You prefer to relent from destroying people. I knew this would happen. Kill me now. That's what he says. It's not fair. Kill me now. I don't want to live in this world. I mean, what a, a fantastic lesson in entitlement and the stubborn pigheadedness headedness of human beings. The petulant Jonah who was himself just rescued from the belly of a fish, just rescued from death. Here he is whinging about God rescuing others. Why? Well, because he's an Israelite. They're entitled to God's salvation, apparently. But these wicked Gentiles are not. They should be destroyed. And so God kind of tests him and teaches him a little bit further. He provides this plant and then takes it away. And when Jonah loses the plant, he repeats his petulant, dramatic plea. Kill me now, God. I'm so angry about this plant. I don't want to live in a world where my private little personal shade plant has been taken away. Not to mention one where God doesn't smite my enemies. Woe is me and all the while God is teaching him isn't he teaching him who's in control teaching him that the vine and the fish and the salvation is from God yes but so is the worm and the storm and the judgment not just for his enemies but for him too Jonah wants salvation for himself and judgment for his enemies. And this is exactly what we've been seeing over the last few weeks in the prophets, Amos particularly. But God is saying, You don't deserve my provision or my mercy or my redemption any more than these wicked Assyrians. It's my choice, Jonah. Do you have a right to be angry? No way. You're a little sinner. An insignificant little sinner, just like everybody else. You've shown that in your disobedience. And any good that you have is purely because of my grace. It's the only reason you are sitting here right now. When are you going to get it, Jonah? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And compassion on whom I have compassion. Aren't we just like Jonah? Just think about the entitlement. God provides us with so many good things. With shelter, with food, with clothing, with family, with work, with friends, with church, with sport, with many, many things. And how quickly we think we deserve them. How quickly we think that they are owed to us somehow. And not a gift instead in our Western consumer culture. And then when we lose them, we think, well, that's not fair. So-and-so next door, he's got all this stuff, and I don't have that. It's not fair. Woe is me. Kill me now, God. Where's my Jew? Where's my rights? I deserve these things too. We are entitled. It's part of who we are. But even worse, we do it with our faith, don't we? with the grace that God has shown us, with the salvation that He's given us, with the compassion He has bestowed upon us. We somehow think it belongs to us and not to others. We look around at people in the rest of the world and we think, wicked people, they should be judged. We forget that so should we. We want salvation for us and judgment for others. We want to keep and not share. And I think that we do this with Jesus himself. We're so glad to be saved by him. So glad to be saved through him. But telling other people? Letting them have that same joy? Well, surely that's not my job. And aren't we just that little bit offended by the idea of grace? Once we get used to it. Aren't we offended by the idea of Jesus spending time with sinners and and going to prostitutes and outcasts, sick people, infected people, criminals. Doesn't that maybe just put us off a little bit? And you can bet that Jonah wouldn't have liked it. No, Jesus, don't go to them. Not the sinners, not the pagans, not the Romans. Aren't we like that too? Just a bit. We need to get over ourselves. We need to wake up where we can to our selfish entitlement and our spiritual comfort and see the always accelerating, always expanding, always increasing compassion of God. We need to stop putting limits on His love and instead share it with the so-called worst of us. I was challenged last night, over this weekend I've I've been angry about what some of our leaders are doing. Angry. And I just want to, you know, do something with my anger. But I can't limit God's compassion towards them and to others who maybe agree with them and to the rest of the whole world. None of us can. God will show mercy where He wills. And if we can't wake up to this entitlement or this righteous sense of, you know, judgment on others, then we need to ask that God will throw us overboard from our secure ships of safety and send a storm into our lives. Or that He will give us three days of near-suffocating whale-gut prayer. Or that He will take away our favorite shade plants or whatever else we feel entitled to so that we humbly learn more about his relentless compassion and his offensive grace. In Jesus, no one is more deserving than any other. You don't deserve salvation any more than Hitler does. But you can be thankful that you have it, thanks to the grace of God. Jesus never looked down on a single person, but he bent down to serve them, didn't he? He washed feet and he healed lepers and he forgave prostitutes and he, he raised dead people. He loved everyone. And we need to stop limiting the compassion of God and instead live it and copy it. Kids have that there on their sheet. God used the plan and the worm to teach Jonah that he shouldn't be angry But instead, should care deeply for people and want to save them, to see them saved. Remember, God doesn't need to use us, He can do all of it without us. But He does want to use us, to teach us, to humble us, to transform us, to grow us, to help us. That's His compassion as much as our initial salvation and we cannot sit there idly thinking yes i've been given salvation all is well because god has more grace to show us and to show others through us as he did with jonah so let's embrace that by sharing it and after all the more undeserving someone seems the more they need the gospel don't they And perhaps the more likely it is that they'll accept it. But that's up to God, isn't it? That's God's work. And I'm certain that He who saved the city of Nineveh has revival in store in our world through His church of willing, gospel-proclaiming prophets. Let's pray. Father God, we confess our likeness to Jonah in running away, in fleeing from your call, in feeling entitled about salvation and not seeking it for others. And we acknowledge, Lord, that you are going to save with us or without us, that you will keep growing your kingdom, saving people who seem impossible to save, and spreading compassion all around the world. And so we humbly ask, Lord, that you will teach us and use us. And more than anything, Lord, we pray for revival, in our country, here in our city, all across the world. Lord, as it grapples with with so much at the moment, we pray that you will be at work through your church, through willing prophets, through people willing to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And that you would bring revival and that you would turn people's hearts towards you, that you would save souls that you would redeem people from the pit and set their feet on a rock. Lord, we pray that you will work this through your Holy Spirit and your sovereign power. Only you can do it, God. But please use us. Humble us. Take away, Lord, our selfish indulgence. Take away the things that we so quickly idolize. And push us, like you pushed Jonah, into those contexts and into those places and into those relationships where we can share the gospel. Father, we pray that you will do that because our lives are changed and you have delivered us and all things are possible through you. Salvation, Lord, belongs to you. Amen.